Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson, and over the past 12 years, I've overseen our patient safety, risk, and quality membership programs here at ECRI. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. We're recording this podcast from our respective home offices as we practice and encourage all of you to practice good social distancing to help limit the spread of COVID. Today's episode is part of ECRI's ongoing response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll discuss ECRI's recent position paper on the fast-track development of COVID-19 vaccines, in which we warned that rushing to deploy vaccines before all the data has been collected and evaluated could lead to increased risk for patients, not to mention harm to public trust in vaccines in general. To get us started, I'll ask our guest to introduce himself. Hi, Paul. I am Dr. Marcus Schaubacher. I'm an anesthesiologist and intensivist. I'm an affiliated associated professor at the Strict Medical School of Chicago, and I'm the CEO and president of ECRI. So I thought we could start by describing the current situation as we understand it today with regard to um, COVID-19 vaccine development. And I'll say, you know, we're recording this here in, in, in the sort of early fall of 2020. Um, can you give us some sort of quick overview of where we are in terms of uh, the development process and, and what that process has been like to date? Yeah, it's been like no other, to be honest with you. Um, we are in the final stages of the clinical development. So we typically, in pharmaceutical development and vaccine development, uh, differentiate between the early in-lab development and then we'll go to uh, the clinical development, which is typically phase one, phase two, phase three, four, and before it gets to approval. And uh, typically for vaccines, that takes anywhere between two to three years. Uh, we are barely 10 months into this process and um, one company actually has already concluded their patient recruitment, or I should say vaccine um, subject recruitment because obviously they're not patients and um, is, is in the follow-up phase. So um, that has never been done before. It's um, a tremendous effort on side of the pharmaceutical companies, on um, side of the regulators to uh, make that possible. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, taxpayers, because they've funded it. You know, most companies who are in this uh, Operation Warp Speed program have received billions of dollars in taxpayers' money. And my understanding of that is that part of the reasoning, the rationale is uh, by removing some of the financial risk for these developers, but by, by having sort of the taxpayer backing, right, we may be able to um, incentivize might not be the right word, but we, by removing some of the financial risk, we can help them accelerate that development. Is that sort of no, fair characterization? It's, it's in incentivizing deliberately, yes. And yeah. uh, the, gov the U.S. government and other governments around the world have given guarantees to um, you know, to buy um, certain amounts of 
millions of doses, dosages of the new vaccines. And that has taken the financial risk out of the equation for those companies. And they have you know, dramatically accelerated and streamlined their operations. And um, you know, the interesting piece is that we're also using very new technology for as vaccine platforms. The, the two leading candidates were the first along, which is Pfizer and Moderna, um, both using the mRNA um, technology where a messenger RNA is inserted um, into the human cell to then create the antibodies. Uh, that has not been used in vaccines before. So that's an additional factor here, which when we're talking about safety and effectiveness of the vaccines, we need to keep into consideration. So if if the the sort of end result of, of this Operation Warp Speed, the, or maybe sort of the intermediate result, I guess, would be finding vaccines that we think are safe and effective and authorizing them through this emergency use authorization process or EUA. And uh, that differs from the more traditional process that you laid out that can take right two to three years, which we refer to as the BLA process. Mm -hmm. um, other than sort of the, the compressed time frame, can you lay out some of the differences between those two processes? Yeah, what the BLA process usually looks like is um, of course, the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine, but it also looks at what's called the CMC, Chemistry, Manufacturing, and Controls. And to the agency's credit, they didn't make any major compromises in this part. So that's look is looking really at the good manufacturing practice, right? How is the vaccine um, developed, how is it tested in the lab, and then how is it manufactured, and, and what controls, quality controls, um, do the companies have in place and to provide a consistent and safe and sterile um, vaccine. So the agency, based on what we heard in the public hearing last week, hasn't made too many compromises um, in, in allowing uh, companies to take shortcuts, which is good, which, which makes us very comfortable. I think the major difference is that typically you would see a uh, more extended timeline for those clinical trials. Um, we took a look at the clinical trials, clinical trial design. They're pretty robust. So there are statistical methods, the way they have kind of um, subgrouped uh, the study population, all that is pretty solid. I think the largest objection we have was with the um, emergency uh, use authorization is that it only requires in its current form. And I read recently that given the hearing, um, FDA might reconsider their position. Um, it would only require about two months of data mm -hmm. to follow up. So. And the rationale for that was and is that typically if you see severe um, adverse events from typical vaccines, that you see that within four to five, six weeks. So the Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is often thrown out there as a, as a major neurological complication, typically manifests itself four to six weeks after, um, after vaccination. 
our argument is a little different. Um, our argument is we're of course concerned about the safety, but more or equally uh, concerned about the effectiveness. And and so that's where we think that the two months is just not sufficient. And you know, I mean, I think I understand why there's a lot of public interest in getting a vaccine out as quickly as possible, right? I mean, that's, sure. that's yeah. natural, right? Um, but what are some of the risks if it's rolled out before we have, an, uh, I, I, and I think you sort of flagged like six months as a, as, you know, as a, a baseline. What are some of the risks if we roll this out before all of that necessary data is collected and understood? Well, we, we, we see two key risks. One is um, an actually uh, effectiveness risk, right? So if we think the on based on the early studies um, or early analysis, the the vaccine is more effective than it is actually is, it can actually worsen the pandemic, because if you then vaccinate it and you go and stop your safe behavior like wearing a mask, social distancing, hand washing, because you think you're you're vaccinated and you're safe. That might be true. So, for example, we always kind of talk about this in a way is let's assume the vaccine is effective to prevent severe cases, but it's not effective in preventing mild cases. So you are mildly symptomatic or maybe not symptomatic at all, but you carry the disease. So you become a super spreader. All those vaccinated people, if they stop behaving safely, become super spreaders and might even worsen the pandemic because we have this false sense of security or safety and effectiveness. Um, that, that's one. And the, the second um, one is really around, you know, when we, how clinical trials are typically conducted is that you, and, and this is no different in this trial, that you set a target on what study um, population you want to get. And in this trial is, you know, differentiated by age, for example, but the FDA has also made very clear, we need um, to, to be comfortable, we need um, people of color, we need certain age groups, we need socioeconomic um, diverse statuses, because we've learned that, you know, COVID is disproportionately hitting people of color, people in socioeconomic difficult situations, people with comorbidities, pre-existing diseases, and so on. What happens in, in a typical clinical trial is that you have, when you're trying to get to all those different populations, you start your recruiting process, and initially, you get people who are highly motivated to participate in those trials. That is typically not the ones I just described. People of color are reluctant to participate, uh, people with comorbidities are reluctant to participate. People in socioeconomic difficult situations are reluctant to participate. So those are, you get to them, but typically it's later in your study. Now, if we, now we have concluded the study, we are in the follow-up time and we're saying, we're looking at two months. Those are the ones which are latest in the study. So we might not even get to them if we restrict our look on the two months. So we don't even know if this um, either is a safety issue for people with comorbidities and other things, 
and or is effective for those people who are most susceptible to severe disease. So that's why we're saying we really need to have the entire cohort for six months because only then we can, we can um, judge its effectiveness and safety. And then the third component is how the dur duration of the effectiveness. If we only look at two months, it might be fine. It might be work for two months, but then have a steep fall off because the antibodies get you know, dissolved in the body um, and not protect beyond that. A, again, it could worsen the pandemic, but B, it could be really a false sense of security for people. And, and we would approve a vaccine, which eventually shows or proves not to be effective. And, and then we would have lost the, tr lost the trust of the public in our ability to develop a uh, safe and effective vaccine. And that's, to me, actually the biggest concern. There's all, already highly sus um, sus a, a high amount of suspicion out there in regards to this vaccine because there has been, it has been so politicized. And there has been undue political pressure on the FDA and the, and the pharma companies to rush this through. Um, if we now bring something out which doesn't work well, um, has any of the things I, I mentioned before, it's going to take us years before we recover from this and can convince the public that, that the vaccine is actually working. And I think especially when you consider that in, in combination with um, all the other vaccine skepticism that preexisted the pandemic, all the, the sort of anti-vaccination, anti yes, yeah. conspiracy theories and so on, layering those things on top of each other is just going to compound them. And, and Absolutely. And, and that's where, where you know, I, I coined this, is not my phrase, but I'm using it and saying it'll go slow to go fast. So if we just take four more months, it's going to be so much more robust. We're going to have so much more data. We have so much more knowledge that it then allows us to really, um, assuming we have an effective and safe vaccine at that time, we can then dramatically increase the acceptance of this and drive it forward into the population, get everybody vaccinated. But if we don't do this right, uh, a, a lot of people are very hesitant to um, give, either take it or give it to their loved ones. By the way, not, except for one clinical trial, uh, which is not finalized yet and is not one of the first two, none of this has been, um, none of the clinical trials include uh, pediatric patients. Hmm. Interesting. So, so if, you think, if you think you want the vaccine out fast so you can vaccinate your children, that ain't going to happen anytime soon anyway. Right. And I, let me tell you, I desperately want my children back in school. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm all for that, but as I said, let's go oh, yeah. a little slow to yes. go fast. So. Do it safe. hundred. Yes. I thought about asking you to take out a crystal ball, right. And predict what the next six months or a year are going to look like for vaccine development and distribution. Uh, but I think maybe that's not fair. So instead, let me, let me ask it this way. Um, can you sort of describe, and I think you've hinted at this or talked about aspects of this throughout our conversation, what is the best case ideal scenario that you could see playing out again from sort of the last quarter of 2020 through the, the beginning part of 2021? What's a best case scenario that sets us up for sort of long-term public health? So the best case and realistic best case scenario, right? is let's take six months from now where these studies wrap up, which gets us into the first quarter of, uh, end of first quarter of 2000 and, 
21. Uh, we then can conclude we have a safe and effective vaccine. By the way, one thing, if I may, just in parenthesis, mm -hmm. uh, one thing which came out of the hearings as well, uh, which again is an argument for doing six months, um, is if you take a look at two months into those clinical trials and think you have an effective vaccine, it becomes ethically very difficult to continue your blinded trial and give only, you know, give placebo to a subset of patients. From a medical ethical perspective, that becomes very difficult. And quite a few experts raised concern about that because now you stopping essentially your clinical trial, which was designed to um, include more patients, which are you know, getting placebo, so you truly have uh, a um, controlled study. And the only way you could do this then later would be to have two uh, vaccines comparing to each other to see if one is more effective than the other. But that's taken even longer, right? So, mm -hmm. so there's another argument for you why you really want to get this six-month data. Um, so the ideal scenario, coming back to that, is really wait the six months, at the end of March, conclude that you have a safe and effective vaccine, and by then have developed a really solid thought-through uh, distribution plan. Because that's another big problem we're going to have. Who do you? I mean, there's there's easy ones, right? There's easy ones to say frontline healthcare workers, easy. The paramedics and who go into homes of people, easy. After that, it becomes really difficult. So when we did H1N1, uh, we distributed vaccine based on population amount in each state. So each state got it, and then the state government decided on what they that ain't a smart way to do this because we know <laughs> that that we have, for example, taken two extremes, right? So uh, Florida has a significant higher number of plus 65 people, which we know have a higher risk versus, um, you know, um, somewhere in the Midwest. And so, so we, we really have to think through and we have to get similar to what the FDA did in getting an expert panel together. We have to get another expert panel together and think about a federally controlled distribution of the vaccines and a plan on how you're going to vaccinate people. And, and one thing which was discussed there as well is very likely that we're going to need two shots, right? Mm -hmm. Two shots of those vaccines. So how do you organize that the, that the person who has the first shot get the second shot of the same vaccine? Because if they get the shot from another vaccine, which by that time might be approved, so we'll really have to think through the distribution uh, and the logistics of this. And you know, the White House just saying, well, we got it under control. We got the army lined up. That ain't gonna cut it. So we, we, we really have to have a federally driven, federally controlled and thought out plan through as experts, not through the people in the White House who, who um, you know, have not a lot of of experience in vaccination, no disrespect to anybody, I mean, but you really sure. need to rely it's on the experts background. there, um, on the experts there in, in figuring out this distribution based on risk. And as I said, the first group is pretty clear, but mm -hmm. after that, it becomes um, quite difficult to determine who that is and how do you organize those logistics. 
sorry. Yeah, I would suggest at this time, if we had a vaccine today and would start vaccinating, um, it would not be a pretty, pretty sight. So, so, so ECRI's role going forward, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sort of assume that we're obviously keeping an eye on these clinical trials, right? We all have oh, absolutely, yes. professional and personal interest in them, yes, you know, yes. um, and, and, and we'll be making, um, you know, as these clinical trials work through their processes, you know, sort of fair to say that we'll continue to be um, as appropriate issuing position papers and other statements to say, Sorry, Paul. Yes, that's that's exactly what we're doing. So we will we'll keep a close eye on this. We're going to continue to work with um, all involved. We're uh, going to continue to scrutinize the public information, and we're going to make our voice heard. We have done it in the past, and we will continue to do so. As you know, we speak in truth to power, no matter who the power is, and and we have no constituency other than the patient out there, or in this case, the population at large. Uh, we have no allegiance to anybody else as a non-for-profit organization. Our mission is to advance evidence-based and effective healthcare, and that's what's very much at stake here. Great. Dr. Schaubacher, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. You can find ECRI's position paper, Fast-Tracking COVID-19 Vaccine Approval, Rushing to the Finish Line May Result in Tripping and Falling, on our website at www.ecri.org. You'll find it as part of our COVID-19 Resource Center, which includes free and shareable resources for the healthcare community, including information on our review of imported N95 style masks, which found that some KN95 masks could be putting healthcare workers at risk. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback Visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.